Hello, this is Tracy Vandeventer with the Little Things First podcast. Hi, Jim. Hey there. What's up? Ah, oh, another day in paradise. Mm-hmm. And who are we talking to today? We're going to talk to Kim Marshall, who has done a lot of work around teacher evaluation. And I wanted to talk to him specifically because, um, well, I I subscribed to his Marshall Memo, which we'll talk about a little bit with him. Um, but he came out with a book, The Best of the Marshall Memo, with Jennifer David Lang. And one of the chapters is on teacher evaluation. And I have been going through the teacher evaluation process myself as a evaluee. Uh-huh. Is that not really a word? Evaluate. Uh, You're the recipient of the teacher evaluation process. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I've just been thinking about... Can you have teacher evaluation? You know, we've we've been concerned a lot about psychological safety. Can you have psychological safety yeah. and have teacher evaluation coexist? I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> Dang. All okay, right, well, so, let's call him. Yeah, okay, let's call Kim Marshall of the famous Marshall Memo, but we're going to actually talk a little bit about the teacher evaluation work he's doing. Okay, we're dialing. Hello. Hi, Kim. This is Jim Martin. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm sorry that we're a little bit late. No problem. We get talking to some of these um, wonderful guests that we have on our program, and it takes us a little longer. So Yeah, yeah. No, no problem. <laughs> Hi, Kim. This is Tracy Van Deventer, and we so appreciate your time today. Well, I, I hope, hope it'll be helpful. I think so. So uh, why don't we start off just by you telling us a little bit about yourself? Right. So now, what, what's the format here? So, so you, you're just going to record this and edit it? Uh, no, we're not gifted enough for that editing piece. Uh, <laughs> we haven't grown up to that level. So we actually, uh-huh. uh, we're recording as we speak right now, and we typically leave it in that kind of authentic form as more of a conversation style. So okay. uh, we just introduced your name before we dialed your number, and, and now we're going. Okay, terrific. <clears throat> well, a little about myself. So I, I became a teacher in Boston uh, right out of college in 1969. And uh, if, you, if you calculate a little bit and think about history, you can think about what was going on at that point in the United States. Uh, urban teaching was a, a draft deferment from the Vietnam War. Uh, so my initial mm-hmm. motivation for getting into teaching was not a noble one, like most <laughs> people I know in the business. Uh, and I got my butt kicked in my first year, really tough first year, but got it together. And then uh, when, they, when the draft uh, eventually went away, which is about a year or so later, I was hooked. And uh, even though I didn't get into teaching because I wanted to, uh, at this point I wanted to stay a teacher. And I was at that middle school in Boston for 11 years uh, and just really thriving and doing good stuff and writing a lot of curriculum and so forth. And then I began to read the research on effective urban schools and realized that the principalship was uh, really the most powerful lever for getting high achievement in in, in impoverished districts, which I was working in, and went back to grad school, got a degree, and then Boston closed all these schools and had a tax-cutting referendum. So I wound up in the Boston Central Office, which was not my dream at all. (laughs) But worked with a dynamic superintendent there, a guy named Bud Spillane, in the early 80s. And then after six years in in the evil Central Office, doing, I think, some pretty good curriculum work, finally got to be a principal and was the principal of a large elementary school in Boston for another 15 years. So that's 32 years of my life with Boston Public Schools. 
And then I got exhausted, and I preach all the time to people that they've got to pace themselves and take care of themselves, which yeah. I did not. And uh, so then I uh, became a consultant and a writer. And so for the last 16 and a half years, I've been doing that. <clears throat> so that's sort of the, the big picture. A lot of time in the front lines now, coaching principals, speaking around the country on certain issues, and uh, doing this weekly thing called the Marshall Memo. Right, which that's how I um, came to be familiar with you, because I... I I'm a subscriber to the Marshall Memo. I love, look forward to it every single week. I would encourage people to get access to that because you read all of these amazing articles and summarize them so that I don't have to go out and read the actual, you know, 40-page article. Yeah, I'm I'm your designated reader. That's the whole idea. That's awesome. And we've also been able to uh, access some guests on this podcast as a result of some of the articles that were featured in the Marshall Memo. So thank you for that as well. <clears throat> great, great. <laughs> so um, will you tell uh, our listeners just a little bit more about the Marshall Memo and how it came to be? Like what made you want to do that? And uh, what kind of a response have you received? Well... <clears throat> So I uh, staggering out of the principalship in 2002, I started working for a nonprofit uh, called New Leaders, mostly in New York and Chicago, and coaching principals. And I, at one point during that year, as I kind of breathed a little bit and had a little more time, I realized, gosh, I have time to read now, because as a principal, I could never keep right. up with Kat Kappen and Ed Leadership and Ed Week. You know, I mm-hmm. read them on vacations, but sometimes I would listen to tapes in my car driving to work, but it just it just wasn't working. Now I had time, <clears throat> and I had this idea of that the new leader should send out to its budding principles, you know, maybe one article a month or something, you know, the summary of an article, and they didn't like that idea. So then a few months later, I said, wait a minute, maybe I can do this myself. So I pitched the idea to a couple of friends who staked me to the first year, and I got into this rhythm of, uh, you know, subscribing to more things. And then reading on Sunday, reading through and trying to find the best articles, and then writing the summaries on Monday and then sending it out. And I started with about 300 subscribers, uh, and it gradually grew. And I got into this rhythm, and it stayed actually stayed in the same rhythm of reading on Sunday and writing on Monday. Uh, but now, jumping forward 16 years, there's a, I read a lot more. I mean, I'm reading, you know, subscribing to 60 publications, and yeah. there's a big stack uh, that I sit down to every Sunday. It takes about seven or eight hours to read through and to find you know, those gems that are hidden among the hundreds of articles that I'm skimming through. And then on Monday, uh, the writing process, which was fairly manageable in the first few years, now, now is pretty daunting. It's 11 hours of solid writing. Oh, wow. Uh, and trying to do, again, my goal is to do an intellectually responsible job with each article so that even if it's a 42-page, you know, Teacher's College Record article or a, you know, a page-and-a-half New York Times article or a David Brooks column or something like that, that I can somehow find the best idea, you know, the, the ideas and the best quotes yeah. and sum it up. And sometimes it's a half page and sometimes it's three or four pages, but it's, it's basically based on the content. And so at about seven o'clock at night, I, every Monday I'm, I'm finished. And this is, by the way, every week for the whole year, just 50 weeks a year. Uh, I'm finished and I'm exhausted. So then a whiskey sour is, is very much in order at that <laughs> point. That's, that's Good choice. That's, uh, that's part of the ritual, and then my wife comes home. She has a busy legal job with the Massachusetts uh, Education Department, and after dinner, we sit down and read through it, and she finds a lot of mistakes because I'm focusing on content, and I'm not, you know, I'm <laughs> making a lot of mistakes, and she's a great, great editor, uh, nice. and so together in an hour, we clean it up, and then, and this is not just typos. This, this is, you know, this is move this article up, or, you know, what about that quote, and so forth, because I'm pulling out quotes every week, too. 
and then it's ready to send. And now, you know, 16 and a half years later, now I have tens of thousands of subscribers in all 50 states and 71 other countries. So it's really, it's grown completely by word of mouth. I've never advertised. And so that's, that's the short story of the Marshall Memo. That's how it works. And the goal is that what it, what it takes me 20 hours to produce on Sunday and Monday, uh, a busy school leader can read in 20 minutes and right. be on top of the best ideas. That's, that's the plan. That's well, wonderful. it works. We love it. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you're appreciating it. <laughs> yeah, and now you've compiled some of the best of your Marshall Memo into a book with Jennifer David Lang, right? Right. And well, that, that we, we kind of stumbled on that idea, you know, many years in. Uh, well, actually, let me tell you about an intermediate step. So, okay. So, you know, we're uh, turning out this, this memo every week. And it's, but when you think about it, it's kind of random. You know, it's whatever happened to hit my mailbox that week. And I, and I let it pile up, and then I go through and I find the best articles, but it's random. And so one week, there might be a wonderful article about, you know, about bullying, and there might be a wonderful article about, uh, you know, uh, interim assessments or something, you know, just a very mixed bag of stuff, which is good. I mean, it's a, it's a burst of professional development each week. But but then at some point, I realized I've got to have an archive. <clears throat> so somebody taught me how to do an archive. And, and one of the last things I do Monday night before I send is I upload to the ar- archive each of the articles uh, with about 10 fields, you know, the publication, the author, the level, elementary, middle, and high school, uh, you know, two topics, uh, you know, and so forth. And so that's all in the cloud now. And so a savvy reader, a savvy subscriber with a password, of course, can get in and find articles. So now... Essentially, you can put together your own theme article, uh, which is great. Um, the problem is, though, that after 16 and a half years, there are thousands of articles up there. So if you were to search under, for example, bullying, you'd find you know, almost 100 articles. So that's overwhelming. So that's, that was the idea of the book. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've got to pull out the best of the best mm-hmm. and, uh, and put together a book that, you know, under certain topics. So that's what Jen and I did in the last year. That's great. And um, I have a copy of the book. And I told Tracy, I would really like to talk to you on this episode about teacher evaluation, because we're Uh sort of in the season of teacher evaluation right now. Tracy's doing it with her staff. Um, I'm an instructional coach. So I've seen, you know, I've gone through it, colleagues are going through it. So we just wanted to talk with you a little bit about teacher evaluation, which you've spent quite a few years researching. And writing yep. about. So what's the current state of teacher evaluation and what does research tell us about its effectiveness? Oh, that's a huge question. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I was trained uh, by the best person in the business, John Safier, uh, you know, before I became a principal. And I, in my early years as a principal, I was very, very good at the traditional teacher evaluation process, which has been basically accepted and done for the last 60 years in America. And that involves a pre-observation conference uh, where you talk over the lesson plan with, with the teacher that you're about to see. Then you observe and take copious notes, and the whole thing is, you know, get everything down, you know, get the narrative of what's going on, low-inference notes, and then you uh, sort of write those up, either in a narrative form, a descriptive form, or scoring on a rubric, and then you sit down with the teacher and have the post-observation conference. So I was very good at that. And uh, thought it was terrific. <clears throat> and uh, then a few years later, <laughs> putting in hundreds and hundreds of hours with this process, it began to dawn on me, and I began to get feedback from teachers that actually uh, they were there too. They know what happened. And, uh, you know, in some cases I was not very uh, uh, perceptive about what was happening because I was so busy writing. And, and, in fact, it wasn't adding any value. 
and so as I as I looked into this, you know, and I, by the way, I'm not really a researcher. I'm a, I'm a compiler and a, and a and a synthesizer. I'm not really a, a genuine university researcher, but I read a ton of research, and I and I really looked into this and and found that uh, one one area of research I'm particularly interested in is the effective schools research, which was started sort of with, uh, actually before Ron Evans, but he was one of the first people, a Harvard professor, and then there were some British researchers, Mortimer and others, and and I really followed this research of what is it that some schools do that makes them much more effective than others with the same student population. And reading this research and keeping up with it over the years, it suddenly dawned on me, wait a minute, you know, here are these factors, say five factors for Ron Evans and seven factors and so forth. You never, ever, ever see teacher evaluation as one of the decisive factors in effective schools. And I said, huh, what's up with that? Because <laughs> here, these administrators are spending hundreds, I mean, it's like it's in the order of 300 hours a year doing this process, you know, meticulously going through the pre-observation conference and so forth, and it's not making any difference. And that rang true in my school, and so I began on my own, but I discovered there are plenty of other people who've discovered this on their own, who stumbled upon this insight much better to use a, a different process. So we can get into that in, in a minute. But the answer to your question is teacher evaluation, as it has been practiced, is basically a zero in terms of value-add. But actually, it's a negative because those hundreds of hours that are spent doing an ineffective process are hours that are not being spent on more effective things, on the things that really do make a difference. So it's it's pretty scandalous, I think. And and I think you saw in my Gadfly article, you know, they sort of uh, kind of the ring the bell on this, you know, come on. I mean, anyone who's continuing to use this this old uh traditional process is really uh is really uh, basically shackling uh, their principles uh, to a process that doesn't add value and wasting a, a lot of their time, wasting some teachers' time, but it doesn't take as much of teachers' time. But it's it's not helping teachers. And so that's uh, I think it's it's a bit of a scandal. So at the same time, then, have you also been creating Utopia? And so you could give us that soon? <laughs> well, what I stumbled upon, and again, you know, this is not some brilliant thing. You know, lots of principals have stumbled upon this. I had the good luck to to uh, to be left alone and to be able to do this. Uh, you know, I could easily have been in a school where my boss said, oh, no, 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 you got to use the traditional process. But I was, I was able to innovate. And so just very briefly, what I stumbled upon was, short, frequent, unannounced visits to classrooms. That is about, about 10 per teacher per year, a couple a day, uh, and, and then a face-to-face coaching conversation with almost all the emphasis on, you know, here's, here's something I noticed that was really working well, and here's something I noticed that, that, that uh, you know, have you, have you thought about changing that a little bit? I mean, you're only calling on the kids to raise their hands, so what about some kind of random calling system? Or what about, uh, you know, having kids turn and talk? You know, just what, specific suggestions, and the face-to-face conversation is a critical piece of this. And then a very brief, as this has evolved, a very brief uh, description of that, right up of that, under, th- under a thousand characters is the ideal thing. That's one software program has that as the ceiling. You know, just a very brief paragraph summarizing, as we discussed, here's, here's him putting it on the record and sending it to the teacher. And that simple process, <clears throat> you know, I used for nine years, uh, union people in the building who were very, very tough on me, uh, liked it. Uh, they said, okay, this is more authentic. Uh, as long as you talk to us and we have a chance to explain why that little girl's head was down or, you know, why I dumped this lesson plan and so forth, then, then it's fair. And you have, you have at the end of the year, a much more accurate picture of, of my teaching. So when I was doing this at the Mather school in Boston, where I was principal, um, at the end of the year, I had to use the traditional Boston process of summing it up. 
but I had a much more accurate picture of the teacher, and the teacher felt that I understood their teaching much more, and I learned a lot from the conversations and the visits, and the teachers uh, learned a lot from me, not always. I didn't, I didn't always have some great suggestion or brilliant insight, and sometimes it was just plain praise. You know, that's, that's fantastic. That's, you know, can, you, can you write an article about that or <laughs> give a talk at our, at our faculty meeting about it? So, so then the question is what goes in the file at the end of the year, and that's evolved since I was a principal as rubrics ha- have evolved. And so, so now what I advocate is at the end of the year, the teacher fills out the rubric, the administrator fills it out, um, and they, you know, they, they come to an agreement about a fair scoring uh, using the rubric. And there are lots of rubrics out there. I've actually written one myself. So that's, in brief, is, is, is the system. There, there, there are, of course, lots of ways to screw it up. Uh, it doesn't always go well. But that's what I've been writing about and preaching. I have, I have a book about it, and what I do a lot of my coaching about is how to be a good observer uh, have have productive conversations with teachers, and then having a fair evaluation at the end of the year. So even if a principal is bound by a traditional teacher evaluation program or approach, um, that person could probably strengthen the process by just maybe spending more time in classrooms and yeah, providing that, some a- coaching, face-to-face coaching for teachers. Yeah, that that can be a problem. Uh, but what I found is is most uh, superintendents and and area superintendents know that the old system is nonsense. I mean, they, they're aware of that. They're not they're not stupid. Um, you know, they mm-hmm. they experience it themselves, and so often they will be amenable to saying, "Okay, well, let's minimize this traditional process because it's in the contract, and let's spend as little time on it. We don't have to write a four page description. You know, we can write a half page description, and we can give pr- more prompt face to face feedback and so often you can you can work within the system. What I advocate, though, is changing the system. I mean, I, I don't see any point in doing a traditional evaluation unless you're firing somebody. If you're firing someone, then you have to go in and write you know detailed notes and for you know an arbitrator, but you know for or for your boss. Uh, but you're only you know we're, we're not we're not talking about firing people here. We're talking about coaching and improving practice. Uh, so I so I think uh, in most cases people. Uh, but the other thing is, so last week I was talking to a group of school leaders in training at the Harvard Ed School, and uh, you know one of my biggest pieces of advice to them in my three-hour talk was, you're going to be looking for jobs. When you interview for a principalship, when they, at the end of the interview, say, do you have any questions for us, your biggest question should be, what's your teacher eval process? Mm-hmm. And if it's stupid and ineffective, then don't take the job. You know, <laughs> go to a place, that, you know, a charter school or... An enlightened district, and this a lot. Of, I mean, this a lot. This is changing fairly rapidly. I mean, most people are moving away from the traditional yeah. system. But if you're if you're a principal and you know looking for a job, you should that should be one of your chief criteria. Hmm. So, going just a little more into that higher ed piece, do you feel that we've done our best at uh, doing evaluations with pre, you know, pre teaching candidates as far as giving them honest feedback and maybe help steer some away from education if they might not be prepared? Oh goodness, that's a leading question. <laughs> well, I, and it doesn't happen a lot, to be honest with you. And we're begging for teachers, so it's also a tricky question because right, I know right. that we don't have enough candidates anymore, and we are looking at all kinds of alternative ways to have certification. But I also know that we have, at least for myself as a as a principal trying to hire candidates right out of college, I, I have had a fair share of people who should never have gotten that far. In my now you're talking opinion. about te- you're talking about teachers now. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, no, that's you're right, and I think ed schools have, have taken a real beating in the last few years. There was a big report. Uh, who was it? Was TNTP or somebody had a, had a very critical report on schools of education? 
so so that that's true uh but but again i think you know the, the art of school leadership is getting ordinary people to do extraordinary things mm. and you don't have to be some genius uh you know to to be a good teacher it takes you know it takes techniques it's a tr- it's a teachable art and of course as you suggested there's some people who should not be in the business P- people who don't like children you know mm-hmm. people who are who are mean and sarcastic people who are who aren't well educated i mean they, you know certainly there 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 are those who should not be in the business but i think you know, often the biggest turnaround stories that I've seen have been principals who came in and took an existing staff mm-hmm. that didn't look too terrific, you know, at first, and and just by getting good good systems going, by creating a professional learning community, by getting teachers working in teams, you know, by some simple, pretty simple processes, got people to do extraordinary things to get real results with kids. And one of the things, by the way, if the principal gets the Marshall Memo would be sending out specific articles. You know, here, here's an article by Paul Damrick Santoyo that suggests that when you ask a question of your kids, you know, for example, what makes a great leader in history to a group of eighth grade you know, social studies kids, you say, okay, think about that, and everybody uh, take out a pencil and write down your thoughts about that. So every kid in the room is writing, and then you begin to have a turn and talk, and then you have a discussion. That, that simple process, of rather than just saying, you know, having the, have one or two eager beavers raise their hands and have a discussion. That simple process of write first, you know, which, mm-hmm. which you know, makes a huge difference. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, I, and, I, and also, as I said at the beginning of the Gadfly article that you, you know, were going to ask me about, I mean, I, I'm really moved by what I see in classrooms. I mean, people are really mm-hmm. working their butts off. They they're are. really trying hard. And they're coming in every day. Both of my children are teachers, and you know, and, and they're they're good teachers and they're veteran teachers, and they work really, really hard. And the correcting they have to do, and when 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 my daughter assigns an essay, she has 135 essays to correct. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's really something. And and principals play such a key role in creating the professional climate and supporting teachers and coaching them and cheerleading them and and supporting them. Yeah. Excellent point. I, I'm I'm looking at that whole cycle and recognizing that we do have some amazing people in our building, and you're absolutely right. It's on the sh- on the shoulders of the administrators to to pull the group together to I think make great things happen. Um, but but as you made reference to talking to like teacher candidates at Harvard, I was I was wondering about that. You know what. What do you see if there's anything on the landscape that might well, be changing? Yeah, actually, actually, those were administrator candidates. Oh, oh, those I'm sorry. Those were people in, in the in the school leadership program who were, but you know, Harvard also has also does teacher training, and uh-huh. you know, and I think, you know, I've been fascinated with what are the characteristics of you know really good teachers, mm-hmm. and uh, certainly you know, spark intelligence, good education, and so forth. But but also just plain grit and and mm-hmm. uh, you know emo- emotional intelligence. One of the mm-hmm. articles in the book, uh, an article by Elena Aguilar. You know, talks about when when she was coaching this teacher and the teacher was in tears and and berating the kids and you know and the parents and so forth and and the teacher ended up quitting and Elena realized that that they had made a hiring mistake because they hadn't really looked at emotional intelligence they mm-hmm. hadn't looked at at grit they hadn't looked at those things which are so important because teaching teaching is really <laughs> it's really hard yeah excellent so um, Kim. Talk a little bit about like value added education. So, 
Should teachers, should evaluation and compensation be tied together? Uh, should we be looking at, you know, for example, our state looks at how much progress a teacher makes um, on the end of year high stakes test with a student uh, and gives them a MGP, a median growth percentile right, right. rating. Um, I mean, what's the effectiveness of that? What is your take on that? Uh, what does research well, say? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's one that I've thought a lot about, and, and if you look in the Marshall Memo Archive, there are a lot of articles that I've summarized on this, because I, I think it's a very, very important question. So the brief history of this is that at the very beginning of the Obama administration in 2009, as they were just getting started, a guy named John Schnur, came, who actually used to be my boss in New Leaders, uh, was in the Oval Office, and he and others pitched the idea to, uh, to the new president and to Arne Duncan, the Secretary of Education, pitched this idea that we should use test scores to evaluate teachers. And uh, there's this formula, this value-add formula, which uses test scores and an elaborate sort of mathematical formula to put a number <clears throat> on each teacher in terms of how much value are they adding to their students. And to Obama and, and Duncan, it's, it's really sounded like a very appealing idea because, you know, there's a lot of mediocre teaching going on, and we've got to improve it, and our schools are, you know, middling internationally, and that keeps coming out. And so, so how can we really hold teachers accountable and, and improve teaching? And so they, they, they really seized on this idea, the, value, the idea of value add, uh, evaluation of teachers using test score data, and uh, they made it a centerpiece of the race to the top legislation so that you really couldn't get this, and there's a lot of money, I mean, billions of dollars, you right. couldn't get this money unless you used uh, test scores as a significant portion of teachers' evaluation. Now, uh, the, the, the one question that Obama and Duncan didn't ask John Schnur and other experts was, okay, this sounds really appealing, and, and, and certainly student learning is what this is all about. How accurate is this value-add formula that you're, you're showing us? Mm. And if, uh, <clears throat> if they had asked that, and, and, and in fairness to Obama, he had other things on his mind, right? You know, the economy's melting down, and the Republicans are... You know, <laughs> being obstructionist and everything else, and so, uh, so, but, but if they had asked that question, the experts would have conceded that value add is actually at the individual teacher level is actually very inaccurate. In, in mm. fact, scandalously, it's about as it's about as accurate as a coin toss. And so, over the last uh, you know few years since two thousand nine, uh, there have been numerous court cases where they brought in experts on value add, and the experts have testified. Uh, on the, I, I've got a wonderful slide on this that shows, you know, it, so confidence interval is one way you measure uh, the accuracy of something like this. So the confidence interval of a Gallup poll, when they do, you know, a poll is is about plus or minus four. The confidence interval of the of the most of a widely used value add thing is 35 oh. for math and and 53 for ELA. So it's wow. it's very inaccurate at the individual. Again, it's it's nice for a university professor. It's nice for a, a researcher. <laughs> to see value-add in, in, in an aggregate, you know, over many teachers. But at the individual teacher level, it, it often gets it wrong. About half the time it gets hmm. it wrong. So there's stories, for example, there's the story of Pascale Moclair, this uh, sixth-grade teacher in New York City. You can, you can look this up. It's quite a story uh, about a sixth-grade teacher who was, who was uh, they did this value-add um, analysis for 30,000 teachers in, in New York City when Bloomberg was mayor. And she came out as the worst teacher in New York City. And the New York Post, uh, you know, had an article in which they named this teacher, Pascal Mothar, as the worst teacher in New York City. So, of course, you know, the reporters went to her school. It turned out she's a terrific teacher, but it was she was one of many teachers where this value-add formula just gets it wrong. Mm. 
And, uh, you know, everyone agrees she's a good teacher. Her kids, the parents, the principal, her, teacher, you know, her colleagues, she's a good teacher. It's just uh, so, so it's, it's kind of scandalous. And the, the good news is that this, there's now wide consensus in the research community that we shouldn't be using this for high-stakes evaluation of teachers. And any state that's still using it, they need to get the memo and, and stop doing it. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a very, very bad practice. Now, that said, I do believe that student learning is important. You know, yeah. there's a, there's a saying that teachers get annoyed when they hear this. If they haven't learned it, you haven't taught it. You know, I mean, learning is is what this is all about, but not with high stakes test scores. <clears throat> you know, and I have a, I have a list of five areas where principals can look at student learning. You know, because that's the bottom line. And teachers should always be looking at okay, I taught that lesson. How did it go? And, you know, starting with when you're in a classroom, looking over kids' shoulders, you know, walking up to kids and saying, you know, whispering to a kid, you know, what, what are you learning? You know, what have you, I, in a, I, you probably saw this about three weeks ago in the memo. There was this wonderful question that a principal, actually an assistant principal wrote this article. He asked kids in the cafeteria. So, you know, he's, he's doing cafeteria duty and he goes up to a kid and he says, tell me something that you learned today that you didn't know yesterday. Hmm. Now, isn't that a great question? That's yes. a great question. <clears throat> Yeah. Oh, yeah. And social studies. Yeah, we learned about the Renaissance. <laughs> I mean, all these people, these guys in, in Italy, these little towns in Italy producing this amazing art. How do they do that? I mean, things like that. Or I haven't learned anything today. <clears throat> so talking to kids, talking to teachers, looking at exit tickets, looking at tests, you know, looking at the, the, the quizzes they give, looking at grade books. I mean, these are all ways of looking at student learning, but it should be in a low stakes way yeah. rather than a high stakes way. Wow, that is so interesting. And I think that we're always trying to get better at giving, well, for me anyways, trying to get get good feedback to teachers because the truth is they want to do their best. Nobody's showing up to be a teacher because they want to fail their kids or they want everybody to, you know, not do well. And so they're hungry for getting some feedback, I think, and getting better. And it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a challenging conquest, if you will, of trying to get oh, feedback yeah. and get into the classrooms and make sure that teachers have opportunities to uh, themselves, you know, even master new skills. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, one of my mantras is shift the conversation to results. Let's always be looking at results, but but in a in a coaching way. You know, why I noticed that you know that almost all you kids got this question right. Why are these? Why what was it? What was confusing these kids? By the way, here's a classic example of that. So there was an, an article where some teacher was really angry at kids because they thought that these kids thought that Alaska was an island. So how can you think Alaska is an island? You know, it's part of North America. But then if you look at the map on the classroom right. wall, it was one of those maps where, you know, they pulled down Alaska and Hawaii down at the bottom. Right. And you see maps like that, right? Yeah. Yes. And so... So that that was a it was an understandable misconception. <laughs> By the way, if you have the book there, if you turn to page two eleven, uh, there's an article about value add, uh, and right. you know, and then the next article actually is uh, two two one seven is about merit pay, and I think you were about to ask me about merit pay, right? Right. Yes. <clears throat> so again, part of the excitement of people about value add, and for example, Chris Christie, the the governor, the former governor of New Jersey, he got all excited about this. You mean to tell me the experts are telling me? <laughs> that I can line up all the teachers in New Jersey from the worst to the best, <clears throat> and I can fire the worst, and then I can give merit pay to the best. And again, to again to a politician at the 50,000-foot level, an ambitious politician, you know, this sounds like a really appealing idea. And again, the experts, you know, he didn't ask the right questions to the experts, and the experts didn't speak up. You know, they didn't tell him. 
sorry, <laughs> it won't work. So merite is, again, is one of these ideas that sounds logical. Okay, so teachers aren't paid enough. What we'll do is we'll pay the best teachers, uh, you know, thousands of dollars more. Like I was in one district in Maine, Cape Elizabeth, Maine, where they were paying the teachers, the best teachers, seven thousand dollars more a year. Hmm. So it was a really big deal. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could you could you could buy a house that you couldn't buy if you had that that much extra money. Right. But the question is, how do you decide who gets that? And in this district in Maine, they were doing it on like one about one classroom visit. Hmm. So you can imagine the, the pressure on the teacher to put on this perfect lesson, and the pressure on the administrator to be fair because there was only so much money to go around. Mm-hmm. So only a few people could get this merit pay. And that idea crashed and burned <clears throat> in this district in Maine. I t- actually talked to the former principal. He said it was the worst two years of his life. Oh, I bet. But again, they they had these business people on their board of ed who who got excited about this idea of merit pay. Turns out that it just doesn't work, even in the business world. It's it's sort of a you know it's it's a questionable uh, concept. Now, should a teacher be paid more if they tutor kids after school? Sure. Should they be paid more if they mentor new teachers? Absolutely. Should they be paid more if they serve on a curriculum committee after hours or in the summer? Absolutely. Uh, but I think using test scores, and I've, I've worked with some charter schools in Newark, New Jersey, where, where they at first they were they had merit pay for tests for test score gains, and it was so divisive and so unfair and so inaccurate and so distorting. You know, because people, some people, well, not in this school, but in some situations, people have cheated, you know, to get the money. And so it just doesn't work. Um, so so we got to get away from that. Should teachers get more pay if they work in Title I schools? Now, that's a great question. In my early years at the Martin Luther King School in Boston, we had what was called combat pay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we had paid extra, uh, you know, because we were in a really tough school. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think I think you want to create incentives, uh, you know, to, 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 to work in tough schools. But no matter how good the incentives are, if there isn't good leadership, and if there isn't a good professional climate in the school, then then people don't want to work there. And also, is money the best motivation? I mean, you want to find you want to find the strongest teachers for those right. schools, right? And that is a problem in American education. Is that often the strongest teachers and the teachers with the most experience are going to teach AP classes or going to teach you know seniors and or you know to, you know in in the elite classes mm-hmm. rather than teaching. Whereas in firefighting. You know, firefighters, up and coming firefighters, they want to be in. They want to be in the in the fire firehouses that have you know that have interesting, <laughs> interesting fires. You know, they're challenging. I believe that's still true. I remember reading that years ago. Hmm. So, um, talk just briefly about your education gadfly article. It's called "Rethinking the Way We Coach, Evaluate, and Appreciate Teachers." Right. Well, I got it in front of me. Uh, so, so this article, uh, Gadfly, is is a is a very good. By the way, it's one of one of my favorite uh, weekly publications. It's online and it's, it's put out by the Thomas Fordham Foundation, which is a pretty conservative uh, group of people, and they have thoughtful, provocative articles. So, I was able to write this article, and I just talked about <clears throat> how one of the biggest things that I see in the classrooms that I visit, and I, I I'm in I'm in a lot of classrooms with the principals I'm coaching. Uh, I see wonderful, wonderful teaching that's just inspiring, and I see very little really bad teaching. You know, you, you don't see a lot of that. But what I do see is mediocre practices. Now, notice I'm not saying a mediocre teacher. I'm saying mediocre teaching. And, you know, there's just a, a string of mediocre practices that you see. I mean, boring worksheets or low-level work or, or as I mentioned earlier, calling only on the kids who raise their hands or, um, you know, just that, that sort of thing, <clears throat> low expectations. 
And and those the, the, those things are not going to be amenable to the traditional process. In fact, often if a teacher you know is, is allowed to put on a, a, a show, you know, a dog and pony show for the principal, the principal will never see that. So you can't document it and you can't coach it. So again, you know, what I advocate is short, frequent, unannounced visits, face-to-face conversations, coaching conversations, trying to get a really authentic a picture of what's going on, and then using the rubric to set goals at the beginning of the year. The teacher self-assesses and set goals, and then, uh, and then you you uh, get the teacher's input and and the administrator's input and do do it at the end of the year. So one of the things I say in the article is that some people think that this is just too hard. <clears throat> you know that that asking principals to get out of their offices and visit a couple of classrooms a day, you know, for for ten minutes, ten or fifteen minutes, and then have you know catch the teacher for a conversation. It's just too hard, and and it's you know it's extremely challenging, and you have to be the, like this brilliant principal to do it. And I really disagree with that. You know, I, I think I think what's really hard is the traditional process, <laughs> so writing all these lengthy descriptions and having these pre-observation conferences, and it's so frustrating because you really you know <clears throat> you you understand most people that you know it's just not making a difference. So, so I, I believe that short visits. First of all, you're focusing on only one thing. You're you're, you're looking for one what Paul Bamry calls a, a coaching, a leverage point, something that can help the teacher either recognize their greatness or and appreciate their greatness, or uh, you know just step it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then having this face-to-face conversation, focusing on only one thing, and only spending five or ten minutes with the teacher again, that's doable. And then having multiple at bats, you know, so you're in there at least once a month and. And and then you're having these sort of summative conversations where you pull it all together, and and you're visiting teacher team meetings and you're just around the building, and I really think you know I I have in my presentations I have a like a time chart of of a week, and I and I put in okay so here on Monday you had a ten minute observation third period and a ten minute observation seventh period and then you had these two conversations, that's a total of about sixty minutes for that day, you had five hours to do all the other stuff, <laughs> you know to. Be in the cafeteria to answer the parents' question, to you know, to do the scheduling, to clean up the throw up, you know, all these other things <laughs> the principals do, and and they're really, you know, my my challenge is first of all, it's doable. Secondly, superintendents should be in schools, you know, watching their principals do this, uh, you know, once a month, and 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 visiting classrooms and and coaching their principals so they get better at it. Uh, but but really, if a principal can't get into a couple of classrooms a day for a couple of visits and have a couple, of, something's badly wrong. You know, either they're not curious and interested in classrooms or they're yeah. tied up with email all day or they're not managing their time well. There's something, something's wrong, and I think it's doable. But yeah. the role of the superintendent, of course, is crucial, is, is supervising principals, and, and uh, that's why these brief write-ups are so important. They can monitor those and just see the kind of yeah. conversations uh, principals are having with teachers. And we, I think that we both agree that, you know, as we're looking at the little things that make a big difference, that's one thing that's come up a few times, right? Principals, administrators, leadership. You know, you need to get out of your office and get out into the classroom and support those teachers on the front lines, giving them feedback, uh, finding out what maybe are obstacles that you can help remove from them. And uh, and if you need to just, uh, you know, work with your maybe your administrative assistant to make sure that nobody's going to come find you. Uh, we used to say uh-huh. three Bs, yeah, well, boys in blue. One of the blood. revolutionary things that I advocate, and I get sort of stunned silence when I show this uh, in my presentations, is is an out-of-office email during the school day in which the principal says, I'm in classrooms working with teachers and attending teacher meetings. I, you know, I will answer your email at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, but during the school day, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm out of my office, yeah. and uh, if it's an emergency, here's the number to call. 
but basically buffering the email. You know. Yeah. So one of the things I mentioned briefly earlier is is uh, uh, oh by the way I was in a situation in New York City a month ago where I said this in front of a group of, of assistant principals. And they all turned to the superintendent who was in the room <laughs> and said, could, could I do that? You know, could I have an out-of-office message? And he was kind of on the spot, but he said, yes. He said, I support that. You know, of course, I have to be able to reach you in an emergency, and I need your cell phone number. And, we, and of course, you need an assistant who can handle some of the, you know, the over-the-transom stuff. But, but he said, I really support that. And they were, they were surprised. And I think a lot of them went off and, and did that. So I said earlier that there are numerous ways to screw this up. You know, so many observations, nice idea, but it's easy. So, for example, what if the administrator comes into the classroom with a laptop and sits there and types like crazy for 10 minutes and then, and then hits send and sends their, their impressions on the classroom or their criticisms to the teacher on the spot? So that's actually happening quite a lot. And and it infuriates teachers because they haven't had a chance to talk to the administrator, and often they'll interrupt the class. You know, when they when the guy leaves, you know, to go look at their laptop and see what he said. So that's that's a, a major problem that's being used in some places. Um, another one is is like New York City, biggest district in the nation. Uh, principals uh, use the Danielson rubric to score each observation. So when they meet with a teacher or when they send their feedback to the teacher, they're saying, okay, on on two A, you know, I'm giving you a score of of two out of four on this one, I'm giving you a score of three. So there's scoring on multiple things and, and, and it, it just creates a whole different climate. You can't have a good conversation because teachers care about the score and they're adding there. They're, they're being kept, you know, this is going into some elaborate database downtown and, 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 and it's, it's going very badly. So that's, those are just a couple of ways. And another way that I see in Boston where I'm uh, coaching principals is it's all about compliance you know, they have to meet their deadlines. You know, you have to do so many visits. And so even even if you have the right idea of short, frequent visits, you know, if it's all about just getting in and checking the box, then, you know, then it's not good. So this takes real leadership. It takes wisdom from the top to, to get this working properly. One last question we have for you. If you could go back in a time machine and talk to your younger self as you were just getting started in education, and we appreciate your background that you, you gave to us, but as you recognize that this was a calling or that you really wanted to join and become an educator, what advice would you give that younger self? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, uh, like many teachers, uh, my big problem up front was classroom management. And, and I was extremely naive about classroom management. I thought that if I was a good guy and had the interests of these kids at heart and, and produced interesting lessons, that they would behave. <laughs> And it, it, it took about a week for that to fall apart. And I was I was disdainful of some of the advice that I was actually given, you know, like set up routines, you know, like have a routine for sharpening your pencils, have a routine for going to the bathroom, you know, and so forth. And I didn't do that, and I really paid the price. So I think the biggest piece of advice would, would be get Fred Jones's book. It's, it's the best book on classroom management. Read it carefully and implement these basic steps in classroom management so that you don't have to be fussing with kids and shouting at kids and getting angry at them all the time, which I was. Um, so, and, and a second thing I was looking at my, my particular profile was I was way, way too into decorating my classroom and getting just the right furniture. And I was, I was even obsessed at one point, there was a kind of fluorescent light bulb that gave off the, the spectrum of sunlight. <laughs> 
And I read some study somewhere that, that it actually improved learning to have these fluorescent light bulbs, you know, uh, that, that uh, had the spectrum of sun, <laughs> sunlight. So I was way too much into that sort of thing <laughs> versus my assessments, uh, quick turnaround, like uh, tutoring kids, like systematically getting, you know, looking at learning and using it. And also, and another big thing, working with my colleagues. I was a, a very isolated teacher. I was on a corridor with 10 sixth grade teachers. So we're all wow. self-contained. A lot of us were, were Vietnam draft avoiders, young, young men who were, you know, who were in there, uh, you know, working hard, but, but uh, not sort of not real prime educators. And if we had just worked together, like if we had given common assessments, uh, you know, and, and looked at the results together and figured out that this, this guy across the hall that I thought was sort of a nerdy guy, but he's, he's getting good results. What's he doing? You know, and if we had shared our insights, we could have, sure. that's still more the Japanese approach uh, sure. that they've been using since the war, uh, since the, you know, the Second World War, uh, you know, we, we would have improved dramatically. We would have, we would have been a real rock star school. So, so those are so, so three of the biggest things, classroom management, um, you know, focus on the real stuff, teaching and learning, and then uh, work, work with colleagues. So those would be my biggest advice to myself. I wish I could time travel back and do that. I know, don't we all? <laughs> we all want to apologize to that first class. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. We've learned so much and just wanted to make sure that people recognize that your Marshall Memo is still going strong and you've got a couple of books out or, uh, or one's coming out. Yeah. Well, so the, the best of Marshall Memo book is on Amazon. You can get that. And, and, uh, the, the Marshall Memo uh, website, marshallmemo.com, uh, even if you're not a subscriber, you can go to this website, and all my writing is available free there. And uh, so, so it's, you just click on the left-hand side, Kim's Published Writing, and you'll see that it's a bunch of stuff, including if you're a high school social studies or history teacher, there, I have a 14-page summary of Guns, Germs, and Steel okay. that I did uh, in collaboration with the author, Jared Diamond. So this, you know, this 450-page book, I did a you know, a good job with maps and diagrams of summarizing this amazing Pulitzer Prize winning book. So that's on there for free. So, so check that out. Very nice. Thank you so much for the tips. Thank you. Well, great questions. Good to talk. And I hope, I hope this is helpful. Oh, it was wonderful. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye.